Good evening, everybody. You are listening to a Rattledge and Broadcasting Premier Podcast, the alternative commentary. And tonight, uh, first, I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And tonight, we're doing something uh, a little bit different. We're calling this an alternative commentary for the infamous Montreal screw job, which was the main event between the hitman Bret Hart and the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels at the 1997 Survivor Series. Uh, but we're not actually going to watch the event like we've done with every other alternative commentary. We're just going to have a general conversation about it and kind of walk through the beginning, middle, and end and from a fan's perspective, because at, at this point, the people involved in it and some that were only tangentially involved and some of them weren't even involved at all, but have an opinion about it have talked this to death. But as fans, it's fun to go back and reflect on what we experienced as we watched it unfold and everything leading up to it. And uh, this wasn't my idea. No, uh, as I said, I am a man of the people. When the people contact me, I respond. Don't you understand? And when my good friend, my ex, my my buddy, who's formerly of the Navy, uh, formerly uh, my concert buddy, the man I drove across state lines with, the man who said we can't go into Denny's because they don't serve redacted. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> my good friend who's already regretting the decision to contact me about this, Dave Gian Grande. How do you do, sir? We're doing all right. Uh, doing all right. Like like I was uh, saying, you know, uh, b- before we came on, um, I, I you know I, I made it a point not to watch the the pay per view event uh, again because it would be you know I thought it would be interesting to do it all from memory mm-hmm. and taking things steps back. Like I said, when we were growing up, there were the kids that were all into wrestling. There were the kids that were all into sports. I was the sports kid. And it just seemed that in the late 80s that, you know, you were a sports fan. You kind of looked down on the wrestling fans like, you know, that stuff's fake. Why would you watch right. that? For the, for the most exceptions, but that just seemed like what it was like growing up in that time. But this particular event and the, the WWE attitude era of wrestling and how great they, they are of expanding their market – they, they did a, um, an excellent job of bringing non-wrestling fans or non-aficionados into the fold to, to, to watch the weekly programs and going to the events. And this, this, this one was a big part of it. Yeah, I, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the Montreal screw job, I think, um, I, it almost creates modern wrestling at these at least at that point when you think about when you think about the years between 1995 and 1998 mm-hmm. those are the nwo years that scott hall jumping over and we uh, pat mullen and i documented this on our history of uh wrestlemania with myself pat mullen neil blackwood Stuart lang depending on which show you <laughs> depending on which wrestlemania we've been talking about and there were a few different ones we documented the the burgeoning Monday Night Wars, and this is right in the middle of that. If you think about the end of the new generation and the beginning of Attitude, this is firmly in the middle of all that. And so, you know, 1996, Scott Hall jumps over to WCW, he, you know, jumps in the ring in the middle of a match, and he's like, 
you know, where's billionaire Ted? You know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here. You know, and then shortly comes Kevin Nash comes over and then they do bash at the beach and Hulk Hogan turns on, uh, becomes healed for the first time in his career. And the NWO is born. That's all the, that's all the summer of 1996. That's between May and July. All that happens. And the WWE is still trying to, you know, they've lost Kevin Nash now. He was a big deal. WrestleMania 12 in 1996 was Hitman versus Shawn Michaels. And now it's Shawn Michaels. Uh, it's Shawn Michaels' yard, essentially. It's, you know, it's his time to shine. Bret Hart takes off for a while to go do, I think, Lonesome Dove. So at the same time, you have Shawn Michaels at the top of the company, and they're trying to adjust to him being, you know, the Hulk Hogan of that era. You have all of this really fun and interesting stuff happening in WCW with his friends jumping ship. Mm-hmm. And that leads to 1997 where you have a situation of the WWE trying to figure out what it's going to do. I mean, I think in 1995, during the diesel years, things were financially so bad in the WWE. Like, famously, they were removing water coolers. No one could, they couldn't afford to do raises. People were getting laid off. They were cutting staff. 1996, it gets a little bit better, but not significantly better. And in 1997, they're like, we're getting our asses beat by Nitro day in and day out. What are we going to do? And that's when they started exper- That's when they started doing the de- de- Degeneration X stuff. That was the um, you know the the Heart Foundation reuniting and doing like the Anti America Pro Canada thing. You have the rise of Steve Austin between '96 and '97. Then his subsequent injury, which leads to him kicking and stunning McMahon, which is like, <laughs> you know, do you remember that? Let's get back into the conversation here. Do you remember the night Steve Austin kicked? And stun Vince McMahon the very first time in Madison Square Garden. Uh, when you when you bring it up, what comes to mind. I know this is way after. Was mm-hmm. the Monday Night Raw when Vince McMahon was a patient in the hospital and uh, Steve Austin bashed him over the head with a bedpan? <laughs> yeah, that was way after. <laughs> no, this was um so SummerSlam 1997. Wait, 97? Mm-hmm. What a year in wrestling! SummerSlam 97. Uh. Owen Hart pile drives Steve Austin. Uh, he gets the, he gets a stinger. He's paralyzed. I just like broke, yeah, paralyzed. I just broke your neck. That was the that's yeah. where that came from. Mm-hmm. And so he can't wrestle, but they don't want to take him off television. So they just have him. So if you remember, they had him doing the thing where every week he would stun somebody new, mm-hmm. and it built to him stunning, stunning. Uh, I think the gimmick was Vince McMahon came out and said, "Steve, we're we're taking you off TV for your own good." You know, give me the belt. We're taking you off TV because at that point he was the Intercontinental Champion. And I think he might have been a tag team champion too. Um, he's like, give me the belt. It'll be fine. We're taking you off TV for your own good. And Steve was like, I understand what you're trying to tell me, but you know what? You're a piece of trash. And then he stuns McMahon. And I remember I was at Madison Square Garden when that happened. I threw my my pants, my penis, all of it, just my whole. The whole lower part of my body just threw it in the ring. We all went crazy. That was the same night as uh, when Mick Foley reemerged as Cactus Jack. You remember that at all? Yeah, he uh, that that was him versus Triple H, um, and they had the hardcore match for the very first time. You remember that? See, I I don't quite remember that, but we're getting mm-hmm. to the we're, we're we're getting to that time frame where I began to start dipping my foot into the the wrestling pool. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, bring up Austin. Austin was was it? You know, when he was 
the champion or the lead, the lead guy for that mm-hmm. run of 98-99, that's where, really where it was full bore, where you had so many people like myself, non-wrestling, nowhere near aficionados, aficionados absolutely flooding in mm-hmm. to watch a bit habitually. Um, around that the 97, I, the, the pay-per-views that stick out in my mind um, – when uh, they were building up to uh, WrestleMania, where Austin took the belt from Shawn Michaels. Yeah, that's the... ninety-eight. Oh, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. No, so no. Here. no, no. WrestleMania fourteen is nineteen ninety-eight. That's Austin Shawn Michaels. So let's go back. So ninety-five is Connecticut. That's uh-huh. Lawrence Taylor versus Bam Bam, and then Shawn Michaels versus Diesel. Because I'm I'm thinking of the the uh, when the one in the Fleet Center in Massachusetts. Austin, that was 98 that was 98 but yep so so the one that we went to the final climax in philadelphia that was 99 correct yeah the raging climax was 99 so here let's let's walk through it i actually do want to ask you about your your wrestling history but let's let's lay out the timeline 95 is basically the end of the new generation um that's that's the that's the diesel year uh, and he loses the title at the end of 95 back to Bret Hart. Bret Hart then loses it to Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 12 in Anaheim in the Iron Man match. Shawn Michaels carries it for the next year, briefly loses it, but regains it back from Sid. And that takes us into WrestleMania 13, where Shawn, lo- Shawn prior to the WrestleMania 13, loses his smile. Um, <laughs> and uh, you have the you have the hot potato with the title that lands with the infamous um, uh, submission match between Bret Hart and Steve Austin at WrestleMania 13, where Austin bled like a stuck pig and Ken Shamrock was the ref. Right, but he never tapped out. Yeah, he never tapped out. He he passed out. He didn't tap out. And then the headliner of that year was Sid versus The Undertaker for the title. Um, That's 13. That's 1997. Uh, The Undertaker carries the title to SummerSlam, Shawn Michaels is the ref. Undertaker's uh, wrestling Bret Hart. Shawn Michaels kicks The Undertaker accidentally in the face because he was aiming for Bret. And he has to count the pin. Bret regains the title. Bret carries it for a couple of months, and that takes us to Survivor Series, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, Let's Mm -hmm. take a brief pause for the cause here, David, because, you know, you talk about being a sports kid and a wrestling fan and all of that. So I was probably between like five and seven when I discovered wrestling. And I and you and I, we're both Long Islanders. We both grew up in New York. Um, so I didn't watch too much uh, of the other territories. Like I didn't watch a lot of NWA. I didn't watch, you know, I don't think we even got championship wrestling from Georgia or Florida or anything like that. Um, and then when it, when it all became world championship wrestling, I didn't even start watching that until, until shortly before Scott Hall jumped over. So that's 1996. Mm-hmm. When did you start watching wrestling? How old were you? We had already met. Because, um, well, we'll go, going back to grade school, um, my parents didn't allow me to watch wrestling. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I really started to like sports going you know, going into middle school and loved mm-hmm. hockey, uh, Giants football. It seemed to be that you had the kids that were sports fans, you had the kids that were wrestling fans. And a lot of us sports fans were we, – we, Myself included would be snobby. Like, why do you watch mm-hmm. wrestling? It's fixed. Sport, you know, real sports is is real. But right. 
you know, obviously looking back now, you know whether a person has spent an entire Sunday watching NFL football or whether they've, they've watched a, a, a wrestling pay-per-view. In either case, that person has neither read nor written the next great American novel. It doesn't matter. But um, mm-hmm. but there was something about the attitude, the attitude era of wrestling that just totally – so extended their market exponentially, bringing in non-wrestling fans into the fold. So we have a mutual friend. That's how we met. Um, I met – our friend John, who I've been podcast, I was podcasting with when I first started back in 2006, but we met in college. So college is 1998 through 2000. No, uh, college is sorry, 1994 to, uh, to 1998. Yes, and so I met. So I had to have met John probably 1996, um, and I think at that point I had just started because I I didn't watch it in much in '95. Uh, mm-hmm. so I had to have met him in 96, somewhere in the middle of college. And I think I had heard him and one of the other, um, maybe Pete or Tony, it might've been Tony, um, mm-hmm. talking wrestling at the back of the classroom that I was in at the time. And because I, me, I inserted myself into their conversation. So, so John and I ended up becoming friends because of it. And of course then John, now you knew John from Nassau community college, right? Like you weren't friends before that. Correct. And, um, Towards the end of his stint at Nassau Community College, before he mm-hmm. met you, he would invite you know folks over. His his deal was if you want to come over to watch a pay per view, you can, but don't mm-hmm. you know don't don't be the one, den- you know denouncing wrestling and and, and you know, <laughs> yeah. you know don't, don't be the anti yeah don't be the anti wrestling douchebag. I remember the rule. Um, okay, right, so- which is fair enough. Yeah. And that's the thing. So I remember some of the, some of the those first. Pay per views, uh, the Rock still being Rocky Maivia in the Nation of Domination, and yep, of course, that's okay. So you had to have met him then. Well, I guess um, so. He's a year older than me, which means he was in he was in college. In well, I met I met him in ninety four, but I didn't start okay. watching wrestling with him until at the beginning, the end, of, at least the end of ninety five, if not the beginning of ninety six. Okay, so around the same. Okay, so you and now you met him from concerts, right? Because I think that's where like, yes. he met all of his friends. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you weren't a big wrestling fan growing up. You started hanging out with John at concerts. John starts inviting people over to watch wrestling, and that's and then when, then I meet him in, at Old Westbury when he leaves Nassau, and then I start coming over, and that's where I meet you and that whole gang, and then we all kind of became a close knit group of wrestling fans. That's about how that happened. Over yes, the course of yeah. ninety six to ninety eight. All right, cool. So moving on. Um, so now we have, now we know how we all, how we all got here. So you were in like a so you didn't really know about like the Hogan era, huh? Uh, the, Hogan and Savage, WrestleMania three, all that. That was all alien well, to you. Outside of the hip to us, heard around the world with uh, Andre the Giant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was pretty. That was pretty much it because I never got right. to watch those pay per views. My parents wouldn't right. allow it. All right, you're a strict attitude era guy, and that's just because that's when you started watching. Gotcha. All right, so let's going back to now 1997. So we're a bunch of friends, and we're all watching, and now we've seen the rise of Steve Austin. We've seen the rise of the NWO. We've seen the rise of Degeneration X, which is what. So on TV, we watched Shawn Michaels re- regain his smile, come back on television, and restart his feud with Bret Hart. Uh, Bret Hart forms a posse around him, the Hart Foundation. So he, he gets his brother back, gets Davey Boy, gets Jim the Anvil back on television, and then flying Brian Pillman uh, shortly before he dies. They're the Hart Foundation. And then you have Shawn Michaels pairing, 
palling around with what's left of his click friends, Triple H, who is also then seconded by his bodyguard, China. Talked about what happened at, at the SummerSlam, where uh, Sean kicked The Undertaker in the face. That leads to September, where uh, Sean and The Undertaker have their uh, ground zero match, which ends in chaos. Do you remember this at all? They had, they had, a, this is the one of the, this is one of the few times you see The Undertaker dive over the top rope, clear it entirely. And I think this might have been the one where he hit the cameraman. Um, but it, it ended in just, just, uh, pandemonium like they were brawling through the crowd all the, the, they cleared out the locker room the lot they had to be dragged apart because that leads and to this, the hell in the cell the following month okay that's there we go okay yeah the hell in the cell is what i remember mm -hmm. where where essentially Shawn michaels carcass was placed on top of the undertaker <laughs> setting up the setting up the uh title match yeah so so at this point bret hart's feuding with the patriot del wilkes Nobody remembers it. Nobody cares. <laughs> it was the, it was not the featured it was not the featured feud at that at that time in the fall of uh, 1997. Um, so the the featured feud is the Undertaker and Shawn Michaels. So they have a two month thing, Ground Zero, and then Bad Blood. I think it was with the very first ever Hell in the Cell. Which do you remember the Hell in the Cell where Shawn Michaels is just kind of hanging at the top and you know looks you know checks to make sure he's going to land in the right spot and proceeds to yeet himself off the uh, off the side of the cage through the announce desk. And I think that's the one where JR was just yelling out, like some idiot thinks, you know, he, you know, he knows how to fall. <laughs> like, well, it, it was matches like that. You know, it was a, mm -hmm. a long way from uh, Jimmy Superfly snooker. It you know, certainly you, was. Which they just, they just always seem to raise the bar where you had to watch. Yeah. And, and that's a really good point. I think we were all kind of glued to it because, again, that's why I brought up the NWO. You never knew who was going to jump over. You never knew who was going to jump back. You never knew what crazy thing you were going to see each week. I mean, the kind of shit. I mean, that was, if you'll remember, that was the same period as Pillman's Got a Gun. You remember this? No, By no. The way, if people, people listening or, draw, or watching on YouTube later, take a drink every time I ask David if he remembers. You'll be blackout drunk <laughs> by the end of this podcast. Um, but. <laughs> Do you so do you remember when um <laughs> wow gosh uh the Pillman's got a gun this was 1996 this was like during the, like Steve Austin stops being stops being the ringmaster just a, he uh he gets out of his feud Savio Vega he's now just sort of just now becoming Stone Cold Steve Austin and he's was, in a feud was, with Brian Pillman go ahead was this before or after Austin won at King of the Ring after okay. Because that was really when he became Steve Austin in earnest, uh, Stone Cold. As I um, remember it back then, the, the winner of King of the Ring was really being groomed to either be yeah. the next champion or to feud in the title match. That And that's the way it would be for years to come. Um, the If I remember correctly, the Steve Austin-Brian Pillman thing was, Brian Pillman was legitimately, like, had re, like legitimately re-injured his ankle. They did an mm -hmm. angle on, on Raw where he got Pillmanized, which is... Steve put the chair on his ankle and jumped on it and broke and broke his ankle again. So Pillman's at home and they're doing like a satellite interview with him in his home. And Steve Austin keeps threatening to come to his home and beat the crap out of him and like finish the job. At which point Pillman pulls a gun out <laughs> and says, I'll be ready for Steve Austin when he gets here. You don't remember that, huh? Mm -mm, that I would have okay. remembered. Of yeah, course, I always remember his catchphrase, uh, Brian Pillman, he don't dial 911. <laughs> that's right 
Pillman nine millimeters. That's uh, Austin three sixteen and Pillman nine millimeter. Right. Um, he played. The, he played the NFL as well. Yeah, he played for the Cincinnati right. Bengals. Yep. Right. So anyway. Which also meant he played with the local Long Island engine Boomer Esiason of East Islip. Oh, there you go. There's some trivia I didn't know. So anyway, um, <laughs> so you have Brian Pillman in the Hart family as one group, and you have DX as the other group. And then um, over the course of the fall of 97, and really over the summer, uh, DX had been feuding with the Hart Foundation, but they kept Bret Hart and, and Shawn Michaels kind of away from each other, at least in the ring. It was a lot of taunting and carrying on back and forth. But for the most part, I don't think they ever actually touched outside of maybe... Uh, no, it wasn't Spring Stampede uh, or Canadian Stampede. He wasn't in that one. In any case... This all builds towards the 1997 Survivor Series where we're finally going to see Brett the Hitman Hart take on Shawn Michaels and Shawn Michaels is going to is slated to win and then he's going to carry the title into 1998 and take on and drop it to Steve Austin and the Austin era will begin. That was mm -hmm. the plan on paper more or less as I as, as I recall. But mm -hmm. you know what's going on behind the scenes during all of this is I want to say 96 um Bret Hart basically like threatened to leave, and mm -hmm. the the story that I've that I've read numerous times, it's been talked about in documentary, has been talked to death, is that they re-signed Bret Hart for some sort of like tw ridiculous twenty year contract, mm -hmm. where he would be <clears throat> he would be paid as an active wrestler for a while, and then he would be, and then he would collect a salary for being like an agent, but he would be with the WWE for twenty years. And like a year into it, they were like, yeah, we can't afford to pay this anymore, which I've always suspected. And I'm curious to get your, your take on this. I don't know. I don't know how much in, inside. Hang on. I don't know. I don't know how much inside you knew about wrestling at the time or now or now know. But I've always sus suspected that Vince saw what was happening in WCW, saw what was happening in the WWE, realized Brett was going to be a pill about the whole thing. and was just looking for a reason to get rid of him. Like, I don't think it was a matter of they couldn't pay the contract. I think Vince just didn't see the value in Bret Hart anymore because they were going in a more like adult, you know, as they would call it, attitude type era. What do you think? Well, I, I didn't have any inside information. And if anything, you were my insider. But I do remember the Wrestling in Shadows documentary and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, talking with other, you know, talking with other fans and this and that. And from what I understood is that Brett was trying to hold the man's over a barrel, figuring you need me to stay. I'm your top guy. Right. Pay me what I want or else. Not mm -hmm. knowing the exact parameters, but that's what I thought. And I figure and I and I I'm get, and I'm guessing that the McMahons for we don't no, no one man is bigger than the company. You, you you're not gonna hold this over you're not gonna hold this over a barrel. Nobody is. Right. What, which is what precipitated what we saw at, at the Survivor Series. And that's that's what really draws, and I don't know, not just me, but a lot of other people in, because there was such an element of reality with this particular match. Yeah, and that's what I, I want to get to. So we, we'll, we can talk about the match in a second. I just want to lay the foundation. Yeah. So uh, they don't want whatever story you believe ultimately they were like we're not gonna we're not gonna pay this contract out go see if you can get a better offer from, from wcw so he does mm -hmm. and his contract ends like 
December 1st, I think it is. So it didn't end at, like the next day after the Survivor Series. Like he absolutely was still under contract, I think, for like another week or two, mm-hmm. um, if I remember correctly. But uh, I also, but if I remember too, a big part of it was you know Vince McMahon and them saying we can't have you going to the other the other the other wrestling circuit yeah. with our belt. Well, yeah, they'd already they 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 had forgotten Medusa still or um, Alundra Blaze. Still had the women's title. She fucking threw it in the fucking trash <laughs> uh, on live television, which you know she has since regretted. Um, so they were like, "Well, we're not going to let that happen again." <laughs> like, yes. and, and I get you know, and I think even I, I like in the next the next day when after the Survivor Series, they did a whole thing on Nitro where they opened up like the NWO opened up uh, singing "Oh Canada," like there, there was just a lot of whatever. Whatever they, uh, sorry, whatever the story was, there was just a lot of anxiety over what will happen if Brett stole the champion the day after the Survivor Series. So, like, they needed to get that belt off of him. I, I, I do need to talk about this because mm-hmm. leading into the, so, so Brett signs with WCW. His last day, I think, is December first. So, you know, the, the 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 more better wrestling historians will be like, no, it was this, not that. But ultimately, he was going to be gone in a week or two, no matter right. what. They needed to get the belt off of him. They needed to put it on Sean. Sean needs to drop it to Steve Austin. However, if you go back and watch the documentaries, read the books, hear the stories, look on the dirt sheets, there was an incident between Brett and Sean where Brett trying to mend fences with Sean. They had been on the outs for a while, but Brett trying to mend fences said, you know, I'll never hurt you. I will always treat you with respect in the ring, and I will put you over and do the right thing on the way out. And Sean's like, great, I'll never do that for you. And, like, walks away. And, Brett, and Brett's like, you motherfucker. <laughs> you know, and, like, rightly so. Like, what a shit thing to say to somebody. So, you know, Brett's like, okay, I'm never going to work with this guy again. That happened well before the Survivor Series. Like, I, and I've, I've talked about this with other people. This is why some people think this whole thing is a work. Because how do you, knowing that that happened... <laughs> Knowing that they had that conversation, then go ahead and book those two. Like, I, um, depending on whose story you believe, because Vince Russo said he's the one that came up with the screw, screw job finish. Jim Cornette says that he did it. Triple H says he did it. Like, everyone's taking credit now for this. But I remember Jim Cornette specifically was like, why do we have to have Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels? Why can't we just put the title on Shamrock? You know, mm-hmm. if we're just going to beat him anyway, who gives a shit? Because Brett had said, like, I'll put anyone over but Sean. And I'm certainly not going to. I'm certainly not going to do it in Canada, which was dumb. So I'll, I'll, that That is the dumbest thing of all of, of all of this is, is this is insistence that it not be in Canada. Like, just say you don't want to put the guy over that he's a big baby and a shithead and you don't want to work with him. Like the, the, the whole like, I'm not doing this in Canada. I'm like, nobody, nobody believes that. In any case. I'm with I'm, I'm with the people who were like just put the title on Shamrock already, but you know it doesn't matter. So there's this animosity between these two guys going into that match. Brett believed the finish was a non-finish. They were gonna have a schmoz, and yes. that they and that he was gonna he was gonna walk out with the title and show up the next night on Raw and just like hand it over. Or, right, that's what that's what I remember, and they showed that in the documentary, which is supposed right. that documentary was supposed to be pro Brett, 
and you, mm. you see where that they came that that was the decision all right we'll have dx or fear belt can't change hands via disqualification right. have a ceremony where you turn the belt over and roll the next night yeah um which people have said like why don't you just piss in vince mcmahon's mouth if you're gonna do that like there was all kinds of things they could have done they could mm. have they, they could have had they could have dropped at the shamrock the next night whatever they could have done an injury angle where they vacate the title and ha- and help hold it up until december like there were so many ways if all you needed to do was get the belt on sean boy were there 101 other ways to do it they were like religiously committed to this way though that's why when people like talk about the montreal screw job as a work i i don't want to believe that but there were times where i'm like really there was no other way, huh? There was people were just gonna like be religiously committed to this one way to do this. Yeah, seems a little working to me. And and this is coming from a non-insider. And like I said, I've never mm-hmm. been a wrestling aficionado, even though mm-hmm. there was that stretch in the Attitude Era where I watched religiously, went to you know went to live events. It it looked it all looked legitimately disjointed that things were not going according to plan. Yeah, let's talk about the match now. So now everyone knows, and granted, if you're listening to this podcast, none of this was new information. We're just two friends kind of having a having a good old-fashioned conversation over a Celsius. Um, <laughs> so the match itself, I'm just going to give my brief thoughts on this, and I'll let you talk for a little while. I remember sitting with you and John and Jim and Jim's mop of a girlfriend. And... Um, <laughs> and... Uh, I'm sorry. She never talked. He, 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 that that could have that could have been a mannequin. I would never have known the difference. Um, <laughs> so, I remember we were all watching, and again, like we knew somewhat what was happening, but not completely. And I remember watching that that match between Brett and Sean, and it looked stiff as shit. They've gone they've gone ahead and said since they were they were working, but they purposely worked like it was a shoot, and they were really messing each other up because it, it looked. All the credit in the world to Brett and Sean, because if, if they were really working, boy, mm-hmm. did they have me fooled. And I've seen a lot of wrestling in my time. They look like they were beating the shit out of each other. Like yeah, they look like they yeah. were potatoing each other a lot. Go ahead. That, that was a part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, two things that stick out in my mind, the very, very end and the very, very beginning. Of course, we'll mm-hmm. get to everything in the middle. But the two things that I, I really wanted to share, the very, very end was noticing on, on John's VCR clock how it said 9.52 p.m. Mm-hmm. when the WWE copyright symbol uh, went on the screen, you know, ending the program as opposed to 10 p.m. And the very, very beginning, it's like, has the match started yet? Did they ring the bell? Because <laughs> it took forever to for the wrestlers to even get in the ring. And you could tell that that looked disjointed. That did not look like it went to plan. And this is before Vince took on a, a, an on-screen role, and you can kind of read his lips saying, "Get in, get in the ring." It's, mm-hmm. I remember, that's the other thing I remember too. When we're sort of like, "Well, has the match even started yet?" Right. Even though they had come out and they were already, you know, wrestling, sort of. Yeah, it definitely had an air of like they were just, just barely keeping the lid on it. Like it mm-hmm. felt you could. Even sitting in a basement in Long Island, New York, all the way to Montreal, 
uh, it just like you could feel not that to be cliche about it, but you could feel the electricity. Like, and this wasn't like excitement electricity. So I always compare this one because to me, and I don't know if you ever saw it, but like you could feel the air of hatred between mm -hmm. John Cena and Rob Van Dam at ECW One Night Stand 2. But that wasn't barely contained chaos the way Montreal was. Like, like you like that that crowd hated John Cena and would have torn him limb from limb if they could have. That crowd loved Rob Van Dam and desperately wanted him to win the title, which he does with the help of Edge. And it feels real. You know it's fake, but it feels real. This felt real, and you know yes. it's fake, but it was different. This felt like, yes. like they barely had control of the situation. Like they almost didn't have a match. It, it, I like I don't remember having the conversation with you guys. Like, does this feel odd to you? Like, like almost like they had to go out at gunpoint. And that's not what happened. They right. went out willingly, but it's still it. it yes. The whole that whole match. You use the word disjointed. That whole match just felt like something was off. Like, yes. That, well, that's the thing. As I you know, and as I remember it, the whole the whole match from beginning to end, mm -hmm. the whole thing had because, because let's be honest. You watch watch wrestling with any degree of consistency. I'm, well, during the break, this is what our WWE cameras caught. You know, yeah, this is legitimately disjointed. Where it, you 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 look at it and you you see someone or several people have gone off the script, and now the 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 people at the very top are now doing are scrambling to do damage control. That's mm -hmm. what I got out of it. That this is this has gone off the rails, and Vince McMahon has created the powers that be have to do something to to get it back on track mm -hmm. you know um, whether you go ahead whether you're talking about how because uh, if I remember correctly too Shawn Michaels got tossed over the over the guardrail to the audience right yeah and look and that happens fair enough especially now now like if you ever watch AE I don't know how much AEW you watch if any but they're fighting in the crowd like every match <laughs> like, there's nine matches on a, on a pay-per-view every match is in the crowd um no, i know that but in this case you're talking about a canadian crowd that will be largely backing bread yeah but not only that but it wasn't happening with alarming regularity back in 1997 if they went over the rail it was a yes. big deal like, because i remember reacting big to it then like like oh my god they went over the rail into the crowd like you know it's a planned spot intellectually, but it feels like they had just lost their minds and were really brawling. Like, and all the credit in the world <clears throat> to Brett and Sean for doing a convincing enough job that they could get smarks like us to believe that something something's not right, something stinks in the state of Denmark. Uh, I want to oh, move yeah. to I want to move to the finish. So okay. You know, we, we've already talked about how the match, there was a lot of, it felt like there was a lot of potatoing. I would love to actually sit with Brett and Sean and ask, just legitimately ask them, did you guys actually make contact with each other? Because it looked like you did. Um, I remember I wrote, I used to write for wrestling websites at the time. And I remember like writing about how it, how real it looked and how it looked like they were really potatoing each other. Um, that there was spit flying everywhere. Like it looked legit. So I'd be curious because Brett talks about, and I think he even talked about it with wrestling in Wrestling with Shadows. It looks like he's full on kicking people in the face. And like you ever notice there's no footprint? 
there's no red mark mm. like after he's hit somebody like because he's not really making contact it just looked real right. so i'd be curious to see how close to real it got if at all um but i mean sean and brett were clearly working up until the very end so they do the pat patterson finish where it's the reversal of the sharpshooter and then Justice, you know, and right before, literally like seconds before Brett's supposed to reverse it on him, Vincent's man's like, ring the bell. But we didn't see him. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. We, the viewers, we heard the bell, Mm -hmm. but we didn't see Vince McMahon actively. Right. And we didn't didn't know what was happening. And we're like, why is the bell ringing? Like, I remember we all looked legitimately confused. Right. As were the the commentators, Ross Mm -hmm. and them. They were legitimately confused, not like on the script, like, oh my goodness, what's happening? You could tell by their reaction that they legitimately did not know what was going on. And neither did we. Right. You, you hear the bell, you wonder why. Right. It's like, well, did he tap out? Did he not tap out? What, what, you know, what? <laughs> and so if you, if you read, like I said, if you know like the history behind this, if you've watched Dark Side of the Ring, like Sean knew what was going to happen. They told him. They were like, get out, you know, we're, they're going to go into your spot. We're going to ring the bell. Don't act like you know what was happening. Shawn Michaels, what a scumbag. Because <laughs> like, now he has well, to, he, like... He, he sold that. because He totally he did. Usually, That's my point. Like he's, he's, like, throwing himself, like, over the ropes. Like, come on, Vince, you motherfucker. How could you do this to us? Piece of shit. <laughs> like, he's such a he, liar. But even before that, the way he doesn't celebrate, usually in, in all of those, no matter how the guy mm-hmm. wins or retains the title... Mm-hmm. The first thing he does is turnbuckles, raises the. There's none yeah. of that. He didn't look yeah. like he knew that he had won. What a what an acting job on behalf of Mike Hickenbottom, right? Like you now have to sell that you didn't know. You have to act mad. Then you have to like listen to Vince be like, "Get out of the ring," and then you have to go unwillingly. But you know the whole time that this is bullshit. I. To me, that, that's the funny thing about the Montreal screw job to me. Like the layers of drama involved. It's really funny. Like, yes. especially like in retrospect now. Um, look back on it and just kind of reflect with my buddy here. And as we're talking about it, just like I know for years he said after that, because again, shortly he's gonna go into hiatus. Like his drug addiction gets worse after this, if I remember correctly. Like he it, it takes a while before him and former Nitro Girl Whisper. Excuse me. Uh, former Nitro Girl Whisper, who becomes his wife, find Jesus and clean up. It's like years later, and I and I remember him talking about how there were a lot of things affecting him. This didn't help, and he lived with an enormous amount of guilt. Like whatever he thought about Bret Hart, whatever consternation there was between the two of them, he still lived with an enormous amount of guilt for his role in this. So I don't want to beat him up too much, but it's hard for me to watch that and think about it now and be like, you're such a POS, though. <laughs> like, it's hard to take anything Shawn Michaels says too seriously when you're that level of liar. He mm-hmm. lies. He just straight up lies that whole time. Because then you see in the Wrestling with Shadows documentary afterwards, and you know, and Brett Brett's wife is like he's screaming at him, and like you, it was a triple H. God, but God saw what you did here tonight. <laughs> yes, and they're both like us. No, we didn't know. How could we have known? Yeah, <laughs> get the fuck out of here. Uh, well, but any, I'll be honest. When it was going down, when we were watching it in real time, mm-hmm. I 
it really it did really appear to me that Shawn Michaels was just as as befuddled as as the rest of us. But like I said, it looks it's like an, he was. It's an award winning performance, right? Well, one thing's for sure, Brett. Obviously, I I don't think he. I think all this, you know, he he was he was legitimately deceived as as were we the viewers. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. So let's just summarize what happens with Brett. So Brett, so Brett's they ring the bell and Brett's like son of a bitch, you know. And he talks about this with wrestling with shadows. I'm not. This is not my interpretation. He literally legitimately mm-hmm. says, "Son of a bitches, they got me." And then he throws a tantrum. He just throws a big giant man tantrum. Like they 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 scurry Shawn Michaels out of the ring. He runs to the back with the belt, and then. Brett spits and spits on Vince, and then he he goes outside. He trashes the monitors um, around the ring. He starts making WCW gestures with his hands, whatever. And then he goes in the back. Infamously, he takes a shower because he's got it, you know. <laughs> and he punches Vince McMahon in the face one time, and then it's done. He's gone. That's the end of it. Um, none of this we saw on television. What we saw, right. was soon, they they faded to black right after, and they showed a little bit of it. The next night on Raw, but not a lot. And then subsequently, as they've taught, as they've done documentaries and whatnot, whatnot on it, they've shown some of the footage, but not all of it. Um, certainly none of the none of the other than Brett's wife and maybe a little bit of the locker room. You never saw like you know you like you never saw Brett punch Vince to this day. Right, because no usually, you, usually with these, especially the the weekly shows. They would say, "Oh, well, during the break, this is what our cameras caught behind the scene." Yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, you but you get the right. It was obviously scripted, and you get the full view of what happened. We yeah. never, we never really see Bret Hart in Vince's aisle, though we know what happened, and you don't so, see him give him the, the you know socking him one either. Right. So, as a fan, like, what is your reaction to? I mean, I'll, I'll set you up this way, telling you my whole thing with Bret. I don't feel sorry for Brett at all. I, I I have said this many times. Anytime that I have had to address this on other podcasts, I do not feel sorry for Brett one single bit. Yes, Shawn Michaels is a shithead. Um, and when Shawn Michaels is like, I'm never going to put you over. Okay. I understand where Brett's coming from. You're, 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 you're paid to do... You're, you're paid to put on a performance. Your performance called for you to drop a title. That's the end of it for me. And I... <laughs> Or you should have quit. They knew. <laughs> they knew they were going to do the Survivor Series match. At, if, if Brett was going to throw that much of a man tantrum about it, he should have said something to Vince well before day of. Which is I, probably the impetus of why they did it this way. Yeah. Am I, so like my whole thing with Brett is it's fake fighting. And this is why, to this day, I still make fun of Bret Hart. See, like, I don't think Shawn Michaels is a good guy, but I make I make more fun of Bret because he took he takes himself a little too seriously for my liking in a entertainment arena that's fake fighting. None of the titles are real. None of the fighting is real. None of this means anything. It's a performance. It's right. a performance. You're right. getting bent out of shape. Sport. Right. You're getting bent out of shape because in because the script says you lose. Good day. <laughs> and you don't like it because you don't like the guy you're performing with. Probably a better way to go about doing this than what you did, which was basically be a, 
someone who you you can't work with, you can't reason with. And I, I get for me, and I know a lot of fans who might be listening to this be like, I don't understand your point, Rattle. My point is, you have to be an adult. Sometimes you take one for the team. You, you know, you should. Yeah, be a professional. Do as you're told. Follow your script. And he couldn't do any yes. of those things, and it results in this. But what do you think? You know, talk about Bret Hart well, for me. I'll, I'll tell you this. I remember some years ago uh, watching an interview of Vince McMahon when he was talking about when Vince McMahon's father was running the company when it was in its infancy. Mm-hmm. And how a big part of the show was the ring announcer, obviously long before Jim Ross and them and Lawler. And um, how important that, that of, a com- of a component to the whole show was the, the guy announcing, making, bringing it to life for the audience, not even on television, just in, in the, in the house. And he felt he was so important that within an hour of showtime that he told Vince McMahon's father, you either give me a new contract and pay me this much or I'm out the door. And of course he didn't cave and he told his son, Vince, you ever, you ever call a match before? No. Well, you're doing it tonight. Learn it. You know, that was to, according to Vince McMahon, that was the, uh, one of the big building blocks of the company or how they, they, they did business is that you weren't going to, you were never going to hold them hostage, no matter how uh, dire or how important anyone or anything was. And the fact that Bret Hart had spent so many years in this industry and around the McMahons to think that he could, that he could do that. Uh, you only got, you only have yourself to blame. Uh, also picking back, piggybacking on your point is it's theater. Professional mm-hmm. wrestling, emphasis on the word professional. Whatever is in the creative script, that's your part. You do it. Plan Collect your check and go on with your business. All right. Can you imagine like you're, you know, you're the villain in, um, I can't remember the actor's name, but uh, what's his nuts from Die Hard? Uh, help me. Hans. Yeah, you're Hans from Die Hard, and like the script says, okay. And at this point, you go out the window and fall to your death. And he's like, oh, I don't want to. I Bruce Willis is a fucking shithead. I don't want to do it. I should be. I should win. <laughs> right. I'm gonna. My my plan is to take the helicopter and like right. go to UNICEF, some global children's <laughs> charity. Right. You know, to take, I don't. To take, to take. I don't feel like I should have to lose this fight in Die Hard. Like. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't take Brett seriously. Like as bad, I think that's where I always land with this. Every time I've talked about this, I, I feel I, I process it, I hash it out, we go back, I have this back and forth with whoever it is I'm talking to, and I always land in the same spot. Shawn Michaels is a terrible human being. Brett's worse. <laughs> like I can't I cannot abide by Brett's behavior. I will always take Shawn Michaels' side to this, even though Shawn Michaels did a shitty thing. It's like, yes, he did a shitty thing in kind of response to Bret Hart's even shittier behavior. Right, but Before- yeah, Shawn Michaels, when it comes to being a professional professional, or a professional wrestler, whatever they asked him to mm-hmm. do for the show, he'll do, even if, it's not, even if it was done begrudgingly. But he always yeah. understood what his job was, well, who yeah. he was, and what the job entailed. Like historically, it's said that he didn't really want to drop the title to Steve Austin, and the Undertaker was prepared to beat him to death if he didn't. He did it. He did it with a broke. He with a, as broke, messed up as his back was from the next Royal Rumble, the Royal Rumble '98, where he hits the casket. 
as mm-hmm. messed up as his back was, as much pain as he's in. Like, I don't know if you remember. Were you were you you weren't there at the fleet center? That was just me and John. Um, but I Correct. remember watching that with John, and I've gone, I've since gone back and rewatched it. Like, it's not a good match, and it's not a good match because Sean can't get up for anything. Like, he's trying his level best, but like compare that to even late in later years, his matches against The Undertaker right before he retired, you know, his matches <laughs> against Kurt Angle or Chris Jericho. Um, like he's in phenomenal shape. Like even his comeback match, the, uh, were you, the, yeah, you were there with us at SummerSlam with, uh, with, when he, when he came back against Triple H and they had their, they had their brawl, right. Where he wore the jeans well, and the boots. There, yeah. At the, at the garden when uh, Austin retained the title against the Undertaker. No, that, yeah, that's SummerSlam 98. That's, I was just, yes. <laughs> so I took my daughter to go see the stadium tour over the weekend. Um, that was Motley Crue, Def Leppard, Poison and Joan Jett. And, you know, bumper music in between bands. They were playing Highway to Hell. And I turned to the people in back of me going, picture it, August 1998. <laughs> oh, we it's, must have heard that song five times. Oh my, oh, my God. I never wanted to hear Highway to Hell ever again. That was... Yes. The joys of seeing live wrestling um but yeah no this was years and, later and, and, and right, that's the thing that's that, also that, a part of a, that SummerSlam is right before you and i left for los angeles it was like that, that it was, is yeah yep. that's that's the one where 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 brock beats the rock um mm-hmm. and Shawn michaels comes back against triple h and they have their they have their uh street fight um and so you I, had to be I there see, for that. icp had a performance connecticut yankees performed but uh, but yeah. it, that's an, that's another example of, of how they they've always found ways to give the fans what they want and ex, mm-hmm. expand in their market. Because even if you didn't watch on a weekly basis, you go to the show, what they put up on the jumbotron proceeding to hype up and, and catch and catch mm-hmm. you catch you up to what's going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. And I also I also remember a year later. When we were mm-hmm. watching SummerSlam '98, and at the very end, um, when uh, the, when when whoever it was didn't tap out with the sharpshooter and the Rock, when the Rock had the guy in the sharpshooter, it had to be had... It was not if it was the '97. If it's the '97, no, you're thinking about the Survivor Series, and it's, it's yes, it's, yeah, it's, that's the yeah, homage. Yeah, it's the yes, they 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 had to redo the Montreal Screw Job the following year with the Rock and Mankind. Yes, that's it. Yeah, was, yeah. Mankind, Adam the Sharpshooter. Mankind didn't tap out, and you, right. I, I, I opened my mouth, but you totally said it. You, you're like, oh my god, they just, they just, how you just pointed out, how they just totally referenced. The, and we would do the it a million more story. times after that because we can't forget any. <laughs> All right, Dave, we've been talking for an hour now, so I'm gonna give it to you for the final words here. I, uh, I, I, when you pitched me this idea, I was like, sure, we can do that. I, you know. I have talked, I don't know if I've talked about anything more than the Ultimate Warrior. This might be it. I might have talked the Montreal screw job to death. But you wanted to talk about it, and I'll enjoy talking to you. Uh, so I'll give you the final word here. Anything left unsaid? Any thoughts you uh, you want to share? Otherwise, we'll uh, we'll close out for the evening. Well, it, it merits conversation, even for people who, who aren't all that interested in wrestling. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the backstory, which wound up being the forefront of the match, is is quite intriguing yeah you know uh, how we obviously know somebody or if not more than one person deviated and there's double cross but it's not 
you know, it's not a part of the storyline. It's it's like what actually happened, mm-hmm. sort of. You know, and that that's that's what makes it so fascinating. And when we were watching it, um, even if you were a novice fan just coming through the the living room, you just you 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 were just totally hooked in, trying to to piece together what exactly is going on here. It's you know? funny because, like, in terms of how this affects them individually. It really doesn't. Brett goes to WCW. Even if the Montreal Screwjob never happens, he's still going to WCW. He still gets kicked in the head by Goldberg. He still retires because of concussions. Shawn Michaels, even if the Montreal Screwjob doesn't happen, he still gets the title. He still wrestles The Undertaker at the Royal Rumble. He still breaks his back on the casket. He still drops the title to Steve Austin. These guys are, like, ineffectual for the next couple of years. Regardless, like, the incident in and of itself is impactful in wrestling because it added to the you never know what's going to happen element in terms of these guys' career though it has no impact they still go on to do exactly what they did like it's the indiana jones thing i don't know if you've heard Mm -hmm. this where they they brought it up in the big bang theory once but they had to have gotten that from somewhere else where like if you take indiana jones out of the movie it ends the exact same way he is completely irrelevant to the plot they still, the Nazis still get the arc. They still open the arc. They still all die. Mm-hmm. If the Montreal screw job never happens, nothing changes other than mm-hmm. that element of expect the unexpected in wrestling for at least a little bit of time. Well, which, I think is, which I think is an interesting takeaway from this whole thing is like how, how effectual but ineffectual the whole Montreal screw job really is in the grand scheme of things. Right. And I, 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 you know, I look from my point of view, Especially, you know, like I said, coming from a quote-unquote non-wrestling fan fan, mm-hmm. sort of, is that as big as the WWE was in 19, 1997, it was big, mm-hmm. a mere two years later, it had grown exponentially. Oh, yeah. And leaps and bounds. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and this was, a, this I, I believe this was a huge part of it. I know it wasn't long after this that I, I wound up watching Raw on a weekly basis and you know, going well, to live events when the opportunities came up. Dennis Leary made a joke in in his No Cure for Cancer comedy special where he's like, mm-hmm. people ask why in the 70s we watch so much TV because we had watched JFK get shot. We had watched Martin Luther King get shot. We watched Bobby Kennedy get shot on TV. Every time we turned on the TV, someone was getting shot. We didn't know who was going to get shot next. You had to watch. You had to watch because you never knew. And it was that was, that was how, if somebody asked me to describe what it's like to be a fan during the Attitude Era, you had mm-hmm. to watch. You had to watch during the Monday Night War. You never knew what was going to happen next. That is an element that has been sorely lacking in wrestling for about twenty years now. Like if you it's like, funny. it's it's funny that you say that because I since really the turn of the century, the mm-hmm. say 2002-2003, I really haven't been watching. Yeah, I, so so me and my friends, uh, we, we call ourselves the Podsmen. It's Chris Bailey, Chris Bailey, Chris Bailey, and my buddy Chris Sheehan, who also another Long, Long Islander, currently residing in Arizona. And it's something that we reflect on a lot about how it hasn't been wrestling hasn't been must much must see TV since the end of the Attitude Era, since the end of the Monday Night War, since since the simulcast. You know where, I mean, in the wake of the WCW purchase by WWE. There's some still musty moments. There's, you know, there's the night ECW invaded. You know, there was the night that, you know, uh, I think Lance Storm and Mike Awesome jumped the rail, stuff like that. 
you know, Booker T ran in, axe kicked somebody. But then the invasion happens. That sucks. And then it's just a lot of, you know, the Steve Austin, Stephanie McMahon, Kurt Angle show for a while. And then it ends. Then the last cool thing that happens is the night before Survivor Series, Paul Heyman does his speech where he's like, I wish death upon you, Vince McMahon. It's still one of my favorite monologues in the history of wrestling. I like my daughter, who's like a music musical theater person, and I've tried to teach to, you know, appropriately do monologues for auditions. I was like, watch the Paul Heyman, you know, pre-Survivor Series speech that he does. That's a perfect model. That's a perfect lesson in how to do a monologue. It's 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 one of the best. It's one of the best pro wrestling um, pro wrestling interviews of all time. But shortly after the invasion ends, I can't think of you have moments. You have the Nexus moments. You have the pipe bomb from CM Punk. You know, you have certain things that happen. You're, you know, you definitely have your holy shit moments, but they're moments. And then, you know, it's it's a pebble in the pond. It makes a ripple. The pond goes back to being still again. Throw another pebble in, makes a ripple, goes back to being still again. Whereas the Monday Night War was like standing on the beach and being hit by wave after wave after wave after wave. So that's it. That's all I have to say. That's all I have to say about that. You got anything else, Dave? No, no, no. I, th- I think I think we got it. But yeah, nine nine fifty two on the VCR clock. The copyright. <laughs> We're out of time. Stay tuned tomorrow to WCW Nitro. This has been the greatest night in the history of our sport. All right, All Dave. because someone wanted to be a superstar. Oh, yeah. He's, he wouldn't put him over. All right, Dave. Hey, this was fun. Um, I've never just kind of just got on and shot the shit before. Like, there's always some agenda of some type, like we're reviewing a show. And they're just like, hey, you just want to talk about this wrestling match we once once upon a time. So this was fun. We should do it again for, for metal. You know, shows that we were at but didn't know each other yet. <laughs> Send me a list. We'll, we'll, we'll work on a schedule. All right, buddy. I will talk to you soon. You got to take it easy. Have a good night.